This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. It's Sunday, December 2nd. I'm Margaret Brennan, and this is Face the Nation. The passing of former President George H.W. Bush, who died this Friday at the age of 94, has prompted the nation to pause and reflect on the life of a man who served as our 41st president. Even the current president put a pause on the news during a meeting of world leaders in Argentina. We lost a president who truly was a wonderful person, a wonderful man, a great man. Uh, it really puts a damper on it, to be honest with you. We'll look back at the life and legacy of the man who was our 41st president and the father of the 43rd. His close friend and former Secretary of State James Baker will be with us, as well as former Vice President Dick Cheney, who served as President George H.W. Bush's Secretary of Defense. Plus, we'll look at the news of the week. How will developments in the cases against the president's personal attorney, Michael Cohen, and Mr. Trump's former campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, affect the Russia investigation? The top Democrat on the Senate Intelligence Committee, Mark Warner, joins us. And we'll hear what happened and what didn't at that meeting with world leaders. It's all ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. Tributes and condolences from around the country and around the world are pouring in following the death of George H.W. Bush late Friday at his home in Houston, Texas. On Monday, his body will be flown on Air Force One here to Washington, where he will lie in state at the U.S. Capitol. A state funeral at Washington National Cathedral will take place on Wednesday, and then he will return to Texas, where he will be buried next to his wife, Barbara, and their daughter, Robin. President Trump declared Wednesday a national day of mourning. That means the stock market and the federal government will be closed down in honor of the 41st president. Joining us now are former Face the Nation moderator and now CBS News contributor Bob Schieffer and CBS This Morning co-host Nora O'Donnell. It's so good to have the both of you here as we look back at the life and legacy uh, of the man that we refer to as 41. Bob, I know you have taken a, a look there at his life. You know, Margaret, I think it's fair to say that George Herbert Walker Bush did nearly everything you can do in life and in politics in his 94 years. As a Navy pilot, he was shot down in combat during World War II. He founded a successful business, had six kids, was a congressman, ambassador to the U.N., head of the CIA, and our first envoy to China. And in 1980, he was ready to go for the big prize, the presidency. He got off to a great start. He won the Iowa caucuses. I interviewed him the morning after, and frankly, I couldn't figure out what he was talking about. We will have forward Big Mo on our side, as they say in athletics. Big Mo? Yeah. Mo <laughs> okay. momentum. Unfortunately for Bush, Ronald Reagan reorganized his campaign, and Bush's Big Mo became Little Mo, and Reagan rolled to the nomination. But in a move that surprised everyone, he chose Bush as his running mate. Bush became the ideal vice president for eight years, doing what vice presidents do, like a minor character in a play passing across the stage on errands that had little to do with the plot. He ran for president when Reagan left office, but his campaign got off to a terrible start. George Bush was a nice man, modest, kind, a man who actually wrote thank-you notes. Trouble was, some mistook niceness for weakness. The question, are you tough enough, was asked of him repeatedly. I equate toughness with moral fiber, with character, with principle, 
with demonstrated leadership in tough jobs where you emerge, not bullying somebody, but with the respect of the people you led. That's toughness. That's fiber. That's character. I've got it. And if I happen to be decent in the process, that should not be a liability. The one-time fighter pilot found himself depicted on the cover of Newsweek magazine as a wimp. To change his image in New Hampshire, he traded the coat and tie for a tractor hat and a windbreaker and drove every piece of heavy machinery he could find. It worked. He won the Republican nomination and made two promises. First, read my lips. No new taxes. And second, an administration based well, on American I values. I want a kinder and gentler nation. So help me God. So help me God. Congratulations. Thank you. Bush beat Michael Dukakis in a landslide, but by that time, the world beyond our shores was changing. The Berlin Wall fell and the Soviet Union was imploding. Because of his temperament and long experience in foreign policy, Bush kept belligerency and boasting down, and the situation cooled. And in 1990, when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, Bush put together a remarkable multi-nation coalition that drove him back to his own borders. Bush's popularity went through the roof, and his re-election was a foregone conclusion. But as the nation's deficit ballooned, he bit the bullet and raised taxes. The move worked, and the economy got better, but many Republicans never forgave him for breaking his no-new-taxes promise, and he lost the 92 election in a three-way race with Ross Perot and Bill Clinton. In time, he saw sons George and Jeb elected to governorships and George as our 43rd president. George H.W. Bush was perhaps the most modest man ever to hold the presidency. His proudest legacy, he always said, was that his kids still came home to see him, and his greatest achievement was marrying Barbara, who died earlier this year after 73 years of marriage. Margaret. Oh, I love that look back. Mm -hmm. uh, Nora, I know that you spent time with H.W.'s son, George W. Bush, our 43rd president, uh, and some of that will be airing tonight on 60 Minutes. Let's take a look. You said that watching his presidency and the criticism that he got as president yeah. helped you. Yeah, I did, because first of all, being the child of a president is unpleasant. I mean, you watch somebody you love get lampooned or made fun of or harshly criticized, it hurts. Uh, and so by the time I became president, you know, I had a, a, a fair amount of asbestos <laughs> on my skin. And it didn't hurt nearly as much, it turns out. You know? It's like fire retardant? Exactly, fire <laughs> retardant. <laughs> Did it bother your father to see you criticized while you were in yeah. office? <laughs> it did. In the end, though, you know, we both knew that's part of the job. I mean, which is actually good, you know, for the country. I mean, you want your powerful people to be held up to scrutiny. When you look back at your father's term in office as president, yeah. he starts to many people look better and better. Yeah, we all do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's the way time works. <laughs> and Nora, I know you spoke with other former presidents. I mean, so few people can even begin to uh, relate to what it's like to be in the Oval Office. What did you learn from some of these formers? Well, tonight on 60 Minutes, you will hear from three former presidents, a rare occurrence in itself. Um, and from George W. Bush, his son, there is not only a reverence for his father, but I think the point he tries to make is that we are mourning something greater than one man in some ways. We are mourning an ideal because uh, President George H.W. Bush was the last of the greatest generation, a man who in every one of his decisions put country above himself. John Meacham has said that to his biographer, that in every one of those decisions, he tr tried to choose the country first, a la the decision to raise taxes, which ultimately cost him his own reelection and arguably led to a fracturing of the Republican Party that has lasted until today. 
But in George W. Bush, he talks, too, about the decisions his father made, mm -hmm. um, you know, talking about reshaping a global world order as one of the most consequential presidents in American history. So and there's some fun stories that have never been told before that you'll hear as well tonight. Bob, you were telling me something similar to what Nora just picked up on there, that for you, you saw H.W. Uh, as a public servant more than a politician, per se. Well, the fact is he was a much better public servant than he was a politician because it was part of his upbringing. His mother had brought him up saying, we never brag on our own achievements. Uh, that's just something that the Bushes don't do. So it was always hard uh, for George H.W. Bush to, to push his own case because he thought it, uh, it reflected poorly on him. He also suffered an enormous loss in his life, mm -hmm. multiple occasions, you know, from when he was the youngest pilot in the Navy. He lost his two crewmates. That haunted him for his entire life. He lost his daughter at the age of three. He lost his first two Senate races. He lost a presidency. There are so many losses throughout his life that I think many people can relate to having own loss in their life. But how did he deal with those losses, that resilience that also, I think, shaped in some ways his humility? Mm -hmm. Bob, you knew the Bush family for decades. What was he like as a person? He was just a nice person. I mean, if, if you would be around him, uh, he'd say, you know, how about a cup of coffee? Or, you know, I mean, he was, he was just, uh, just a regular guy. Seriously. And and his uh, son was very much like him. I, I was uh, listening to, to Nora's uh, interview there. You know, presidents come under fire. And... When George Bush would come under fire, people say, oh, it's too bad. And, and you know what he always said? He said, nobody asked me to run for mm -hmm. office. Mm -hmm. I decided to do this. This is part of it. Bob, Nora, thanks to both of you. We will see you later in the show. And be sure to tune in for tonight's 60 Minutes for more of Nora's interview with George W. Bush. We'll also hear, as she said, from former presidents Bill Clinton and Barack Obama on George H.W.'s legacy. We turn now to President George H.W. Bush's longtime friend, his Secretary of State, James Baker, who joins us from the Baker Institute in Houston this morning. My condolences, sir. I know you were dear friends uh, with the former president, and you were with him in those final moments. Knowing him as you did for so many years, uh, can you tell us what you took away in those last moments? What is left with you in terms of your memory of him? Well, he was, uh, he was, uh, he had great uh, faith uh, in God. He was uh, a religious person who didn't wear his religion on his sleeve, but he was a man of great faith. He was a family man. He, as uh, one of your, uh, in your lead-in, someone said, one of the things he said that he was proudest of was that his children came home. And he was proud of that. He was a, he was a selfless, uh, patriotic uh, servant of the United States of America for many, many years. Uh, and he was one who did not believe in taking credit. He was one who believed uh, in letting other people get the credit. He was courageous, courageous enough to run for president when nobody knew who he was. He was an asterisk in the polls. He jumped into that race in 1980. He ended up beating such uh, more popular political figures as John Conley and Howard Baker and Bob Dole and others and uh, to become the last man standing uh, with Ronald Reagan and therefore uh, ended up being his vice president. So he was, he was a man of great capacity. He was a man of great... Uh, uh, tenderness and sensitivity. He was, as someone said, the last gentleman that we've had as president. Why was it so important to you to be by his side in those last moments? Well, it was important to me to be by his side because we've been friends for 60 years. That's a fairly uh, long period of time. We, we were doubles partners together here in Houston. We won uh, tennis championships. Uh, I knew him uh, well before he ever even got into politics when he was a businessman. He was my, he was, uh, my daughter's godfather. Uh, I ran every one of his uh, campaigns for president. We were very, very close. He referred to me oftentimes as his best friend. 
He said our relationship was one of big brother, little brother, which uh, was a great honor as far as I was concerned. Which one were so you? That, I was the little brother, and I was very, very happy for, for uh, George H.W. Bush to refer to me as his little brother. And we were extremely close, uh, Margaret. And uh, from, from the very, almost from the very time we met back in 1958, uh, for almost 60 years. I was there when he passed. His passing was very, very peaceful, gentle, if you will. Uh, uh, there, were, there were a number of things that I remember about it. Not, he, uh, he, the, the caregivers... Uh, I, I, went, I went to see him on a Friday morning. I hadn't seen him for a while. He'd had three bad days. I went to check on him after a run. And, uh, and one of the caregivers said, Mr. President, Secretary Baker's here. And he, he looked up at me, opened both eyes, looked at me and said, Jim, where are we going? And I said, well, uh, Heffy, because that's what I called him, Heffy, which is Spanish for chief. I said, well, Heffy, we're going to heaven. He said, that's where I want to go. And uh, then as he began to, to, move, to go downhill, they, they got all of his children on uh, the telephone. Only one of them was able to be with him at the time, his son Neil. They got the others on the telephone, and they were all able to tell their father how much they loved him and to say goodbye. And his very last words, the very last words he spoke, were spoken to uh, George W. Bush, President Bush, 43, who had told him how much he loved him and that he would see him on the other side. And 41 said, I love you too. And that was about 40 minutes before he passed away. He kept his sense of humor, Margaret, right mm -hmm. up until the very end. My wife Susan was there with me, and uh, at one point she went over and put her hand on his forehead, and she said, we love you very much, Effie. And he cocked one eye open, and he said, well, you better hurry. <laughs> so so he was, he was, his sense of humor was intact right up till the very end. His, his passing was really very peaceful, no struggling, no, no pain at all. Well, Secretary Baker, thank you very much for sharing so much of yeah. the personal side. Uh, I know you were a key yeah. part of helping to shape his foreign policy legacy and so much of his time in office. Thank you for sharing all those intimate details. Thank you, Margaret. We'll be back with another key official from the Bush administration, his former Secretary of Defense, Dick Cheney. He's standing by with us. We'll hear from him in just one moment. What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time, and your financial solutions can too. Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 World's Most Ethical Companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you, that's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love. Or visit www.pacificlife.com. Welcome back to Face the Nation. Joining us now is former Vice President Dick Cheney, who served as Defense Secretary to President H.W. Bush. Thank you for being here with us. Uh, we just heard so much of, of who 41 was as a person. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of his legacy for the country, he was in office at such a tremendous time of change in the world, of upheaval. You were at the Pentagon at that time. How do you think uh, the fact that he was part of that greatest generation, a World War II vet, that he had seen combat, how did all of that come together to inform his role uh, and in shaping foreign policy? Well, I think the nation was lucky to have him uh, at that particular time. I say he was the last World War II veteran. And um, but we also, there were just remarkable events that took place during those four years. When you think about the end of the Cold War, the Soviet Union going out of business, um, the um, unification of Germany, uh, the uh, uh, liberation, if you will, of all those former Soviet uh, states in, uh, in Eastern Europe. 
um, big, big changes that uh, the situation had existed since the end of World War II and through the Cold War. And um, all of a sudden it ends, and he was in exactly the right spot when that happened, especially because he understood that uh, partly what was needed was to manage the U.S. reaction, that there was a way if you, if you overdid it, if, uh, say, people were dancing on the Berlin Wall, um, you could get into a situation where you'd make it tougher for Gorbachev to do what we wanted him to do, uh, which was end the Cold War. And uh, the president was masterful at, at shaping that relationship. Uh, I know as a secretary of defense, my interest uh, from a, a secretarial standpoint was I wanted to get military attaches and all of those embassies established in all those former Soviet states. Um, president made sure we didn't go too fast. He didn't want to be in a position where we were uh, embarrassing, if you will, Gorbachev, and that we could wait a few months in some of those cases to get that done. Um, but he was um, superb, and then his leadership in the Gulf War was was really remarkable. Uh, I know Secretary Baker has talked about, as president, he was able to balance America's national interests along with our shared values. Right. Sometimes those things are described as being in uh, competition with each other. Mm-hmm. How do you think he was able to balance those, and, and is that something that we've lost? Well, he had this <clears throat> rare combination. I mean, he's a 58 combat missions in World War II, shot down over the Pacific, rescued uh, uh, by an American submarine, came obviously very close to death. Um, and uh, at the same time, his tremendous background um, in uh, diplomacy, the United Nations, ambassador to China. Uh, he had a, a set of relationships. I can remember the first weekend of the Gulf crisis. He sent me out to get permission from... Uh, Saudi Arabia and Egypt for the deployment of U.S. forces. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd turned around, I'd finished that, headed back, and he called me and said, oh, we've got to stop in Morocco because he'd just gotten hold of the king of Morocco and uh, wanted me to stop in and brief him and sign the Moroccans up. He was the, the best desk officer we ever had at the State Department because <laughs> he knew all these folks. Very involved in the details. De- involved in the details both with the use of the military as well as in the uh, the diplomacy, but on the, on the military side of it, he was uh, he was a great boss because uh, he basically give you your head. Told me to go run the Defense Department. We had four million people in mm-hmm. defense in those days. And uh, how different was it since you have such an unusual experience of having worked for both forty one and mm-hmm. forty three? How different were father and son? Well, there there were differences there, no question about it. But um, especially there were differences in the time. Uh, it was only you know eight years apart from right. the end of the first Bush administration, the beginning of the second. Um, but there had been some remarkable changes during that period of time. One of the things that had happened was 9/11, mm-hmm. and we'd been hit and lost 3,000 Americans on 9/11. Um, uh, that was a, a big event between made things different in um, uh, 43's day than what they'd been in 41's day. Did that change your relationship with 41? Um, no, not really. Um, he. Uh, at one point, I was accused of uh, becoming, uh, used the phrase, iron ass. <laughs> he used that language that I'd changed from when I was Secretary of Defense working for him to when I was Vice President working for his son. And, uh, You're smiling at that description. Well, <laughs> I can laugh about it. Um, after he'd done it, uh, I got a note from him saying, Dear Dick, I did it. And then he went on to say nice things about me. But that year when the Alpha, Alpha dinner was held, here in Washington, mm-hmm. um, he arranged for me to be uh, sit right next to him at the head table. I mean, he wanted to make sure there was no uh, perpetual uh, aggravation there at all between 41 and myself. That's quite the, the personal anecdote there. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Vice President, for joining us and sharing your memories. Thank you, Margaret. Up next, we're going to be talking about that bombshell development in the Russia investigation that President Trump's personal attorney, Michael Cohen, lied to Congress, the top Democrat on the Senate Intelligence Committee. Virginia's Mark Warner is here to tell us what that means. Memories make us laugh and cry. And sometimes cringe when we look back at our fashion choices. But in between flashbacks of bowl cuts and dad jeans, our memories are fading. And so is the old media that holds them. Hi, I'm Adam Baselogger. And I'm Nick Mako, and we're the founders of Legacy Box. Legacy Box is the easiest and safest way to preserve your family memories. Here's how it works. Fill Legacy Box with your outdated media. 
we professionally digitize and send them back on DVDs, thumb drive, or the cloud. Look, those forgotten home movies, VHS tapes, film reels, and photos are degrading right before your eyes. Experience peace of mind and enjoy reliving the glory days. Join more than half a million families who have already trusted Legacy Box. Save your memories today. Visit LegacyBox.com save. And for a limited time, get 40% off your order. That's LegacyBox.com save for 40% off. LegacyBox.com save. Welcome back to Face the Nation. Virginia Senator Mark Warner is the top Democrat on the Intelligence Committee, and he joins us here. Uh, Senator, as a Democrat, how do you remember Bush 41? President Bush was a class act, and I think he realized, and reflecting on this program this morning, American leadership is critical. But that leadership needs to be both economic, military, but also moral leadership. And I think President Bush to think about the transition from the end of the Cold War, as Vice President Cheney was mentioning, or his ability to deal with the aftermath of the Tiananmen Square massacre in China, mm-hmm. uh, or his the situation with Kuwait. He always knew that America was stronger with alliances, and the rest of the world looked to that American leadership in all of those realms, as I mentioned, militarily, economically, but also morally. And uh, I think it would be all of us, as we reflect on his legacy, to remember that those lessons are still important for all of us to keep in mind. It sounds like you're describing a different brand of republicanism than, than what well, you're seeing now. A bit different, yes. I want to I get to your role right now on the Senate mm-hmm. Intelligence Committee, where you are the ranking member. This week, we heard that the president's former personal attorney, Michael Cohn, pled guilty to lying to Congress about a financial interest, specifically a building in Moscow uh, that the Trump Organization was seeking to build during the campaign. Uh, and... That was reportedly discovered after, this, after the special counsel came and asked your committee for a transcript of what Michael Cohen had said. What does all of this signal to you? Well, it signals, one, that if you lie to Congress, and I was with our chairman, Chairman Burr, on Friday, where he said, if you lie to Congress, we're going to go after you. We're going to make sure that gets referred. Uh, and we've made it's a number of referrals. It's rare to go forward with a prosecution. And we've made a number of referrals. But I think what it also says and, is that Donald Trump, as a candidate, said no dealings with Russia. I think if I'd been a Republican, Demo- uh, Republican delegate uh, going into the summer of 2016, I think it would have been a relevant fact to know that actually Donald Trump was still trying to do business with the Russian government. Maybe that's why he was so reluctant to say anything bad about Vladimir Putin. What we also know at this point is not only were this ongoing business deals, but you had the president's son and his son-in-law meeting with Russians. We had the president's campaign aides mm-hmm. being aware that there were the Hillary Clinton emails. We had the president's campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, offering to brief Russian agents. Um, There seems to be all of these paths lead to ties with Russia, and Mr. Trump continues to deny any of that. Well, the president is essentially saying seeking a profit is not a crime, right? And and separating out this allegation of collusion with Russian intelligence versus his his organization's business interests. But, Margaret, what what I'd say is we can debate whether it's a crime or not. But he was, during that period, was denying any ties to Russia. Mm -hmm. And I do think it would have been a relevant factor, frankly, for Republican delegates to know that during that time period when he was saying only good things about Vladimir Putin, as a candidate for president, he was still trying to do business with that very same government. Do you know that candidate Trump knew about the pursuit of this tower? Again, I'm not... I only know what uh, Mr. Cohen has said, and clearly most of the individuals that are affiliated with uh, Trump mm-hmm. have led themselves into being accused of lying. Was Although he instructed he, to lie, Michael Cohen? I don't know. I think that is a very relevant question that the American people need an answer to. You said at the beginning of our conversation you've made a number of referrals. Now, to be clear, what you're investigating here is sort of parallel to what the special counsel is doing there in terms of, of pursuing criminal charges, potentially. But we saw these two probes intersect this week. When you say you've made a number of referrals, are you saying you've said to the special counsel a number of Trump associates are lying and we have proof of it? Again, I'm not going to go into which individuals have been referred. But what but were what, they referred for? Well, if we've seen something that we feel it would be appropriate to go to the special prosecutor, as Chairman Burr mentioned, uh, we'll make those referrals. And we want to make clear that lying to Congress is a crime. 
In the case of Michael Cohen, the special counsel came to you. Is that correct? We have an ongoing relationship with the special counsel. We have, as you said, though, two different approaches. The special prosecutor is a criminal investigation. We are a counterintelligence investigation, mm -hmm. and we've concluded, obviously, that Russia interve intervened massively, and we need to preclude that from happening again. We're also looking into the question of whether that there was collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russians. I believe there are clear evidence that the Russians were offering uh, information about Hillary Clinton. We know that. That's been documented in a number of these meetings. The question about whether it was full conclusion, uh, collusion, that is something both Chairman Burr and I are reserving judgment until we see all of the witnesses, and we've got more folks to see. A matter of other business, you saw the president at this gathering of world leaders in Argentina. He unveiled what is an agreement, I guess, in principle with Mexico and Canada for a new free trade deal. He says he's going to reject the old NAFTA and get this new one approved and in place, no problem. Is it going to be that simple? It's not going to be that simple. Um, candidly, he, based on not done a full review at this point, um, but I think he could have actually renegotiated most of this activity within the existing NAFTA framework. Uh, but he wanted to put his own stamp on, and now Congress has a right to come in and review whether it's labor, whether it's environmental, whether the deal is actually better. Uh, I think these are all open questions, and I think you've already seen pushback from folks on both sides of the aisle. And you're not ready to say you're going to vote for I'm against it? I'm not ready at all at this point. All right. Senator, thank you for joining us. Thank you. We'll be right back with more Face the Nation and our panel. For more insight into this week's political news, we're joined now by Jeffrey Goldberg, editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, plus David Nakamura and Sungmin Kim, both of whom covered the White House. David from uh, The Washington Post, Sungmin uh, from Capitol Hill uh, these days. Uh, Sungmin, we just spoke to Mark Warner on Senate Intelligence, who was sort of making sense of, of how he sees the decision uh, for Michael Cohen to plead guilty to lying to Congress. This is not a crime that is very often prosecuted. Uh, how is this decision to move ahead sort of seen on Capitol Hill? Is this tightening the uh, probe uh, more closely around the president, or is this just a process prosecution? Well, what I find really interesting about the charge that Michael Cohen pleaded guilty to over the week, lying to Congress, is remember that a lot of people have talked to Congress throughout the course of all these Russia investigations. Uh, the, the panels that have been investigating the Russia issues have been House Intelligence Committee, the Senate Intel Committee, which Warner is, the, is one of the heads of, and the Senate Judiciary Committee. And there are a lot of characters who have given a lot of different statements to Congress. And what I found really stark, in addition to Senator Warner's comments on your show was what Senator Burr, the chairman of the Intelligence Committee, said um, just on Friday at a forum in Texas. And he said, if you lie to Congress, we're going to come after you. Mm -hmm. And he says the committee is constantly reviewing testimony of the, of the that they had gotten over the last year, looking for inconsistencies. They've made referrals to the special counsel, to DOJ. So that's a pretty big hint to us that we should, be, we should continue to watch what Mueller is up to. And, and Senator Warner said a number of referrals have been made, suggesting he's not the only Trump associate to have lied to Congress. Yeah, no, you know, one of the amazing things here is that we're all, the country, the world even, waiting for the Mueller report. We're getting the Mueller report. Every day he's, 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 he's writing the report for us through these uh, investigations, through these informations, through these, uh, through these prosecutions. Uh, I think I was just on the Hill uh, this week asking a number of uh, Democrats uh, how aggressive they think this is going to get. Um, they think it's going to get extraordinarily aggressive, and we're going to be entering a whole new phase where the subpoenas are going to be coming flying fast and furious, and the fights between the White House and Congress over who can, who will be able to testify. They're going to be ferocious. I mean, you're already seeing it even in other places. I mean, that you're seeing uh, anger from the Hill about um, the administration's cooperation or lack thereof in briefing over uh, the murder of uh, the journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Mm -hmm. I mean, you had um, uh, two senior officials go to the Hill, uh, Mattis and Pompeo, uh, and deliver some sort of a briefing about what the administration knows about this, but Gina Haspel, the CIA director, was not there. Uh, and so you're already seeing uh, Lindsey Graham and others, uh, even on the Republican side, being upset about uh, this administration and, and tr they're, them trying to do oversight. So I think... Right. And if Trump loses Lindsey Graham on this, you know how the rest of the, the Hill is yeah. going to take this. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I want to come 
to one of the other disputes on the Hill, which was uh, Republican Senator Jeff Flake this week. He got a lot of flack from fellow Republicans for his decision to with withhold his vote, basically hold it hostage until there is some sort of hearing for this bill to protect the special counsel from being fired. Many Republicans say this is a lost cause. Why is Jeff Flake pushing this when Republican leaders will never let this go to a vote? Well, this is his kind of his last grasp of power since he's going out of, since he's leaving office in a few weeks. But he has felt, um, he has told us several times that he has felt increasingly concerned about the fate of the Mueller probe, uh, particularly triggered by the appointment of Matt Whitaker as the acting attorney general. We know Mr. Whitaker has had public comments before his current position that disparaged the Mueller probe. Um, mostly all Democrats share that concern as well. Um, but we, I've been asking some Republican sources, why not just give Jeff Flake the quote or the vote so he can move on. You guys can vote on Pardon all the gift. Exactly. You guys can vote on all the judges that you want. But mm -hmm. this is this would be a very difficult vote. First of all, people say don't want to reward bad behavior on Capitol Hill. But sometimes that works and also it's gonna be a difficult vote for a lot of Republicans and they want to avoid that. I want to ask you about your organization's reporting, though, on this issue as well, because Jeff Flake was blamed for uh, blocking a certain federal judge from moving mm -hmm. ahead. Uh, and it's really not just all about Jeff Flake mm -hmm. on this one particular issue, right? You had uncovered some reporting uh, about Thomas Farr. Exactly. So Thomas Farr was a person who was up for a federal judgeship in North Carolina. He had worked for uh, Jesse Helms, the former Jesse Helms, uh, Senator Jesse Helms in 84 and 90. And we at the Washington Post uncovered an old DOJ memo earlier this week that a lot of senators, a growing group of senators, including um, Senator Tim Scott, who eventually said he would vote against the nominee, but other senators as well that said it raises questions about whether this nominee Thomas Farr had any knowledge or involvement in this effort to disenfranchise black voters in North Carolina during the 1990 campaign. So it shows a couple of things. First of all, that while Trump has had a lot of success in transforming the federal judiciary in a conservative fashion, he's still running into t a lot of obstacles because of the types of nominees that he picks. And two, the Senate, very narrow majority in the Republican Senate, so mm -hmm. one person really does have a lot of power here. David, the president in leaving Argentina and the gathering at the world uh, the G20, gathering of world leaders, has said there was a major success in coming to agreement with Xi Jinping of China. What was actually agreed to? I think it's a more limited success. Um, <laughs> it did avert, a, you know, something of a potential, you know, I don't say catastrophe, but, uh, you know, next level of this trade war with China because uh, new tariffs could go have gone into effect at the beginning of next year. Uh, but they seem to have averted that at least for 90 days. They basically said they're going to have a truce, a, sort of a temporary ceasefire on these tariffs. Uh, the president will not raise uh, the $200 billion in tariffs from 10 percent to 25 percent, something China really didn't want to happen. In return, China will agree to buy some more goods. And uh, to declare fentanyl as a uh, controlled substance, something the president really wanted to sort of show that he was making uh, inroads in his war to sort of deal with the opioid crisis. But um, I think more, more, you know, deeper analysis shows that these intrinsic problems between U.S. and China on trade are not going away. And to say that it could happen within 90 days is somewhat unrealistic. Mm -hmm. It's something that's gone on for a couple of years now. It does seem, though, that he blinked a little bit. Um, there's a lot of bluster about China. And then when push comes to shove, here we are. But he was generally, oddly, or uncharacteristically subdued, I think, at the G20, which is to say there were no, uh, he signed onto the statement, there were no outbursts. The, the drama was with uh, Putin and Mohammed bin Salman, the Saudi crown prince. There was no associated drama. He was, if you didn't know better, you would say that he had, fo following a, a playbook uh, written by more traditional presidents in multilateral settings, and I just found that noteworthy. He canceled a press conference, deferred to uh, George, you know, the, the, the eulogies to uh, George mm H.W. -hmm. Bush uh, as well. But, uh, you know, I think, um, you know, the president is feeling pressure on trade. Um, the, the announcement from GM to lay off 15,000 people, uh, other, you know, sort of stock market uh, volatility we've seen over the last couple months has, has worried the White House. This is something, obviously, the economy, uh, you know, they're one of their biggest focuses uh, as he sort of starts to enter his reelection campaign. Right. It's a success of the economy. The president says he's not being given credit for. Uh, Singman, how easy will it be to get this new NAFTA, the USMCA, as the president's branding it? through. Not easy at <laughs> all. Um, I just started looking through statements of what senators have said on this deal. You have Elizabeth Warren saying it doesn't have enough protections for workers. You have Senator Pat Toomey as free trade as you can be saying it doesn't he doesn't like uh, these provisions involving investor protections in that new agreement. And you have Senator Rubio also saying this deal is going to really hurt Florida's uh, seasonal vegetable grower industry. <laughs> so there's a lot of uh, uh, broader philosophical concerns 
concerns, parochial concerns. Um, and so either the administration is going to have to really twist arms right. here or work out a lot of side deals. Very quickly, members. has the government shutdown been averted? Check back in with us on Friday. <laughs> we'll see. Check the president. You never, yeah. you never say exactly, that. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the president had hinted possibly he might sign off on, on something that would buy a bit more time and deference to allow mm -hmm. those to uh, mourn the passing of uh, Bush 41. But we will see. That is the, the safe bet uh, in, in Trump's Washington. Let's right. see what happens. Right. We'll be back in a moment with our panel and look back at the legacy of George H.W. Bush. I used to think that all diet and weight loss plans were the same. Well, not anymore, because I found Noom. Noom is a new and totally different approach to losing weight and getting healthy that uses psychology and small goals to help change your habits. So it's easy to lose the weight and keep it off for good. Noom combines the power of technology with real human support, offering as little or as much help as you want along the way. And since Noom is an app, it's always with you and easy to use which makes it super easy to stay on track and reach your goals. Plus, it's really simple to get started. Just go online, answer a few quick questions, and they'll create a personalized program just for you. Noom helped me lose my old way of thinking about food and dieting. So what do you have to lose? Visit noom.com slash podcast, N-O-O-M dot com slash podcast, and start your 14-day trial today. Like they say, change your habits, change your mind, and change for good with Noom. We're back now with Bob Schieffer, plus Susan Page, Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today and author of The Matriarch, Barbara Bush and the Making of an American Dynasty. Also joining us is Jerry Seib of The Wall Street Journal. All three of these very esteemed journalists have covered Bush 41 uh, and Washington through the years, so can really give us that perspective. And Jerry, I want to start with you because you've been taking a look at the impact 41 had in terms of global leadership. Yeah. What was that legacy? Well, I mean, it's a remarkable period of time. You had the Tiananmen Square episode. You had the dissolution of the Soviet Union, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the reunification of Germany. But I think there are two things, really, that ought to be remembered. One is he oversaw the end of the Cold War and the unification of Germany without a shot being fired, which was a really a remarkable achievement, was not a foregone conclusion. He probably didn't get enough credit for it at the time. Angela Merkel gave him credit for it the other day. <laughs> Thank She should have. So, mm -hmm. and, the, and the second, of course, the Iraq War. And I think what's interesting about the first Gulf War was he went into Kuwait, he led a coalition, they drove Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait back into Iraq, and then he stopped. In other words, he said, our mission is limited, we're going to free Kuwait, and we're not going to go in and try to change the government in Iraq. And so we learned some years later that was a very wise decision. What you're describing here, multilateralism, working with allies, restraint, uh, speaking out at times about shared values versus national interests, this sounds like a, a in some ways, anachronistic description of Republican Party you know, values and standards. Is well, it? George Bush was part of that generation that shaped world order mm -hmm. after, after World War II. And, and just to add to one thing that Jerry said, in addition to uh, going into Kuwait and then going back and stopping, he also got that remarkable coalition of, of countries that he put together to pay for it, right. which is almost yeah. unheard of in this day and time. Uh, they actually paid for it. But... George Bush was, he represented mainstream Republican thinking uh, of that time, uh, and that is that America is part of the world. He had great respect for our alliances. He understood that when America was at its best was when, they were, when we were working with people who shared our values, our allies. He had a great respect for NATO and all of these alliances that came about after World War II. So uh, the fact that... Uh, he had had all these jobs. He had this great resume. He actually learned from it. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. I think you could say that yeah. uh, he, he, while he was there, he just didn't sit around. He, he learned a lot. And it's interesting, Susan, because these days we talk about not being part of Washington, mm -hmm. coming in with different experience as being a virtue, whereas what you're describing is he held you know, experience at the very highest levels of power bases here in Washington before getting to the Oval Office. And, you know, the passage of time has been kind to George H.W. Bush. We talk about journalism being the first draft of history, but the second draft sometimes looks different than the first draft. And I think some of the things that 
uh, some of the consequences of his presidency look so much better with the passage of time, including, for instance, his restraint uh, in dealing with Saddam Hussein and the situation in Iraq. Um, some presidents seem smaller after a little time has passed. George Bush seems bigger than he did at the time he was defeated for a second term, something that left a, a terrible wound, although I think not some big scars on him healed uh, when his son was then elected. And what is the domestic legacy here? I mean, we're talking about his place in the world, but who was he to America? So, you know, his domestic legacy is marred somewhat because he was seen as being a little insensitive or unaware, not in touch with the economic anxieties Americans were feeling. Uh, in 1992, Bill Clinton was exquis exquisitely, I'm not sure I can say that word, aware <laughs> Uh, of that. But his domestic legacy is actually pretty muscular. He signed the Americans with Disabilities Act. That's a significant piece of legislation. He gave a national address on addressing AIDS. Uh, and I think it's easy for us to forget now how much of a breakthrough that was at that time, a great stigma attached to HIV AIDS. He gave an address and in the address talked about the lessons he learned from the death of his daughter from leukemia. At the time she died, leukemia also had a great stigma. He talked about the need to address people with AIDS with respect and dignity. And that was a remarkable speech that he gave during his presidency. You know, I've, I've read interviews where 41 said he didn't like the word dynasty or, you know, yeah. talking to, about his family. But he was the son of a senator and the father of a president. Is, is the Bush family still going to continue to be part of this sort of political uh, landscape of this country? Or are we seeing the sunset on the type of republicanism, or the type of uh, leader that you all are, are describing? Well, you know, in a, in a way, I think that uh, George H.W. Bush is sort of the last of the breed. I mean, this was a generation, as Bob said, that it, when he came to Washington, the town was full of people who were bonded by joint service in World War II which was more important than where they came from, more important than the party they represented. And that's been lost. And I think one of the other things that's been lost is the kind of the sense of decency and civility that I think he represented. And that in many ways, the Bush family represented. And I don't, I, the Bush family's political history is woven all through the 20th century history of America. Will that be true in the 21st century? I'm not so sure. But there is a sense in which I think the George H.W. Bush version of republicanism is kind of gone. Uh, you know, that's an interesting point, too. I mean, uh, George H.W. Bush and his son both had great respect for the presidency, the office of the presidency. Uh, you know, uh, George W. Bush, you didn't come into the Oval Office unless you were wearing a suit and tie. And he got that mm -hmm. from, from his dad. I mean, you know, you can say, well, that's kind of... Whatever. But the fact is, it shows the respect and the dignity that the office deserves. And uh, and they were very big on that. And uh, I think they were right about it. You know, and they extended that to the current president. You know, obviously, the Bush family had a lot of conflicts with Donald mm -hmm. Trump, including the fact that he defeated Jeb Bush for the Republican nomination in 2016. Uh, we know that the Bushes didn't, George and Barbara Bush didn't vote for uh, Donald Trump, but he's invited to the funeral. Uh, and I think there was never any question that that would happen because in George Bush's mind, that was the right thing to do, to show respect to the current occupant. He did not attend Barbara Bush's funeral. He did not. Now, there is uh, some history where presidents, sitting presidents do not attend the funerals of former first ladies. So that was not a break with precedent. But we have little doubt that Barbara Bush did not think much of Donald Trump. And she was a woman who... Uh, who spoke her mind. She wrote in her son's name when she voted in 2016 for president. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, all of you. I know throughout the week we're going to be remembering the legacy of 41 here on CBS. And we will be right back with Face the Nation. Are you having trouble sleeping? NFL players have been coached. Blue light from smart devices, it can affect your sleep. They'll even wear blue blocker glasses in the evening for improved sleep. Others will try tart cherry juice and smoothies. Not only can it help fight inflammation, but to help you sleep, it's got high amounts of natural melatonin that's beneficial for sleep. The other night, my girlfriend told me I was snoring way too much and even the earplugs weren't helping. So the next day, she took me to the Sleep Number store because if I was snoring, at least she could get a good night's sleep on a Sleep Number bed. Sleep Number beds allow you to adjust on each side to your ideal firmness, comfort, and support. The Sleep Number 360 smart bed senses your movement and automatically adjusts to keep you sleeping comfortably through the night. With Sleep IQ technology inside the bed, it tracks how you're sleeping so you can know every morning how well you've slept. 
and gain insights for your best sleep. Experience the smart, effortless comfort of the Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed. Find your competitive edge with proven quality sleep from $999. Sleep Number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find the one nearest you at sleepnumber.com slash cadence. That's sleepnumber.com slash C-A-D-E-N-C-E. Sleep Number. Stay with CBS all week where we will have continuing coverage uh, as the nation pays tribute to the 41st president. He will uh, be laid to rest on Wednesday, and we will have coverage of it throughout our CBS platforms. But for us on Face the Nation, that is it for us today. Thank you for watching. Until next week on Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were former Secretary of State James Baker, former Vice President Dick Cheney, and Virginia Democratic Senator Mark Warner. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow... If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. Okay. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts.